It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. It was a long and winding road, but we have got a good deal to show for it. It is fair, it is a balanced deal, and it is the right and responsible thing to do for both sides. Welcome to EU Confidential and Happy New Year. It may not feel like one right now, but we can all hope that 2021 gets better as it goes on. And we look forward to being with you all through the year, whether you're listening to us here in Brussels, across Europe or around the world. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor, and you just heard Ursula von der Leyen, the European Commission president, quoting the Beatles as she announced one of the big stories of the holiday period, a post-Brexit trade deal between the EU and the UK. We'll talk about that and two other big stories from the last couple of weeks, coronavirus vaccination and the EU-China investment pact. And we'll also look ahead to some of the big issues we expect to cover in 2021. We've assembled a top panel of political reporters to tackle all of that, and we'll get to them in just a moment. First, a couple of quick things. Number one, the political podcast family is growing. Last time we played you the trailer for our new show, Westminster Insider, with Jack Blanchard, and the pilot episode lands on Friday. Look out for it wherever you get your podcasts. We'll also include a link in this week's show notes. Second thing, we recorded the panel discussion just before the storming of the US Congress. Words that sound really quite strange to say out loud. We focus on European politics here, of course, but just in case you're wondering why that doesn't get at least a mention, that's the reason. Although I don't think you need any help from us to form a view on that one. And with that, let's get right to it and introduce the panel. So our regulars are here. Happy New Year to Rimontaz in Paris. Bonne année. Bonne année and hello to everyone. And Gutes Neues Jahr to Matt Karnichnik in Berlin. Hi, Matt. Hello, hello. Gutes Neues Jahr. And a couple of other familiar voices. Sarah Wheaton, now our chief policy correspondent. Hi, Sarah. Hi, happy 2021. And joining us from London, Charlie Cooper, our chief UK correspondent. Hi, Charlie. Hello, happy new year. Happy new year to you too. Of course, uh, the Brexit deal has been concluded. We'll get on to that in a bit. But as Boris Johnson made clear, the UK is still, of course, very much part of Europe. So great to have you with us as well. So I thought we would talk, kind of divide things into two parts because quite a lot has happened since our last podcast, which was only a couple of weeks ago, but it's actually been a very newsy period over the holidays for once. And so I thought we would talk about you know some of the things that have been in the news or are in the news right now and then uh, look ahead to the year 
try and make some predictions as we did uh, last year and uh, just look at some of the big moments, the big stories that we're likely to see unfold over the next 12 months. So let's start with uh, the coronavirus. I'm afraid it's uh, unavoidable. And obviously the big story at the moment is vaccination. There's a lot of controversy in a lot of countries, a kind of uproar in some cases that things are not going faster. I know that Reem and, and Matt are um, hearing a lot about that in France and Germany. The UK is a bit ahead on the vaccination front. Sarah, you're the person who, who follows this and has followed this most closely. What do you make of it? You know, What's the substance of the main complaints and how much... How much merit is there to them and how much how much do we actually know and how much are we actually in a position to judge, you know, the accusations that are flying around at the moment? Well, we're in a remarkable situation where the much reviled pharmaceutical industry has really come through, created multiple unexpectedly successful coronavirus vaccines in a record amount of time. And governments across the world have just completely dropped the ball for various different reasons. And now we're seeing the blame game play out at various different levels. So if we look at Germany, which is doing an okay job of getting the vaccines that it has out to people, but definitely they still have many on the shelves still that are not going out. Nonetheless, in Germany, they're saying, we don't have enough vaccines. The United States, the United Kingdom, they bought them more quickly. Why don't we have them? Oh, it's Brussels' fault. And then in France, and Reem uh, and, and her colleague Elisa Braun in Paris have done some great reporting on this. Macron's government has just completely dropped the ball and basically distributed very few vaccines. And we can get into these different arguments. In Germany, it really seems to be a domestic political argument that's tied up in the chancellor's race. But the most convenient thing to do has been to, as so often happens in the European Union, has been to blame Brussels, to say, Brussels, you didn't buy enough vaccines. Brussels is like, hey, we did. They're just not being produced fast enough. And meanwhile, countries, we told you in October to set up a plan for how you're going to actually distribute these vaccines. You haven't done it. That's not our fault. Right. And there does seem to be certainly uh, there's there's the whole issue of what was ordered, how much was ordered, whether it was ordered in time. But then there's obviously a logistical issue. And I think that's the thing that a lot of people are finding hard to understand because the warnings were there. We certainly heard them from, um, well, from Ursula von der Leyen, the European Commission president. We also had Peter Piot, the eminent virologist on the podcast a couple of months ago, and he warned very specifically about this. This is an, uh, a huge logistic operation. And uh, when you judge by the fiasco of test and trace in many countries, in many member states, that means that we really need to make an extra effort. This is nothing medical. This is about mobilizing people. You can't do it just with doctors and nurses, but there will be other people that will have to be trained, and that's pretty easy. The logistics, the supply chain, transport, the data management, just name it. So we better all do some fire drills and uh, test the systems right now. But yet it still seems like governments have kind of been caught napping or or not at least recognised the psychological effect of this, right? Because you hear people say, well, look, don't judge us now, judge us in a couple of months in terms of how quickly we've actually rolled it out. But a lot of Europeans, a lot of people around the world, this is having a big psychological effect. 
you know, you want to see some light at the end of the tunnel and kind of saying, well, you know, judges in a couple of months doesn't feel like it's going to cut it. How's it playing out in France, um, Reem? As, as uh, Sarah says, it, it seems like a lot of the focus there, the blame is on the French government itself rather than on Brussels. Hugely controversial issue in France, hugely. It is the only story of this beginning of the year the French, I mean, notoriously are unhappy with what the government does. And right now they have very stubborn, objective numbers to support their unhappiness with the way the government and the state has been performing. I mean, just think about this. Based on numbers, publicly available numbers of January 1st or January 3rd, France had vaccinated 516 people, even though it had 500,000 doses of the vaccine, when other countries that started at the same time had many-fold more people vaccinated in that same amount of time. And that has been, you know, a very stubborn fact for the government to try to respond to. It was also very interesting that the French health minister, who is from Macron's party, and so a very pro-European, obviously, and European party, yesterday, so this was Tuesday, was on radio, and he was obviously in the hot seat. And at one point, he attempted to blame the EU to say, you know, we have to actually ramp up the process and the rhythm of acquiring doses. And it's just insane to say that because they have only used a super small fraction of the doses that they do have, and they are now expecting to receive 500,000 doses per week of the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine. They're also expecting 200,000 doses of the Moderna vaccine that was just approved, and that will be 200,000, I think, per month. So this is obviously a huge issue. And like you said, Andrew, it is a psychological issue. People are holding on to this vaccine, even though in France there is an unusually high amount of vaccine skepticism. But even among those who do want to get the vaccine, for them, it's their ticket out. It's their ticket back to normalcy. And this is what is really at stake here. And obviously, also, there are fears that if you fall behind on vaccinating and so getting to that herd immunity, then your economic recovery is going to suffer. Yeah. Matt, what do you make of it? When you and I were talking the other day, I had the impression you you maybe had uh, a bit more time for the view that's uh, prominent, at least in some parts of the German press, that, uh, you know, the Commission has a lot of questions to answer here, the European Commission. Well, I do. I, I tend to blame the EU for everything that goes wrong, as you know. But <laughs> no, seriously, I think the interesting thing about this is that everybody is blaming everybody. It's like this cartoon where, you know, you've got fingers pointing in every direction. And it's not just that everybody's blaming the EU. You've got the Germans blaming the French, a prominent German politician a couple of days ago on a, a nighttime talk show that's watched by millions of Germans, basically laid blame at France's door, then the French denied this. And then you have a situation where the Germans, you know, have this inferiority complex because other countries have vaccinated more people like Israel, and they're wondering what the hell went wrong. And then you have France looking at Germany and saying, well, we've only vaccinated a few thousand and Germany's already vaccinated 200,000. So I think the dust needs to settle here, to be honest, to really understand what has happened. And I look forward to Sarah's expose on this because I think that we're all a little bit confused at the moment. Yeah, I mean, and this is, and these, you know, we should uh, acknowledge 
uh, you know, from time to time. These are tough decisions, right, when you're in these situations. But, but I agree with you also. I do feel like a lot of allegations are being thrown around. It's not a particularly edifying start to the new year, I will say that. I remember when we were doing our end of year podcast and I was saying, listen, the European Commission suddenly looking pretty good or the EU is looking pretty good. They've got the recovery fund approved and, you know, vaccinations are, are on the way and, uh, you know, they organised the purchase of these things and now you know a couple of weeks later it doesn't look so great but I think I agree with you that part of the problem is we don't actually know what decisions were made when and what information people had available at that particular time. Sarah did you want to come in with a quick point? Yeah I just want to to have a few reality checks here. One is that we always knew or at least those of us who are paying attention always knew that there were going to be nowhere near enough vaccines to go around anytime soon. And the reality is, as much as people are saying that the commission should have bought more, right now, these companies are saying that they can't fulfill the orders that we've already put in until September. Likewise, the United States, which keeps is often the point of, of comparison, and it's perceived that they were doing better because they reserved more of some vaccines more quickly, It's a total nightmare in the United States also. I think they have distributed or so sent out to states some 13 million vaccines and only four have actually gone into arms. Four million, right, rather than four. So buying more vaccines earlier does not necessarily translate into better vaccination campaigns. Really, the only country that's doing right well right now is Israel. I think Bahrain and Denmark is sort of the EU leader. These are all very small countries. Mm, that, that certainly can help. But then, you know, Belgium is a relatively small country and is not doing terribly well so far. But Charlie, let's bring in you because if we look at, we have a, a tracker on our website now that looks at the latest data for how many vaccinations have been administered. And there we can see, you know, the UK is streets ahead of other European countries. At the same time, it does feel like the UK is suffering very heavily from what looks like a, a third wave. I mean, how do you how do you judge the mood and, and you know, what's the, the conversation in the UK at the moment? Are people feeling upbeat about the vaccine or downbeat about the sheer spread of the virus at the moment? I think you're absolutely right. It's kind of a case of thank God the UK has done quite well on the vaccine or thank God for the government in that respect, because if the UK hadn't done well on the vaccine, the government would be in an incredibly sticky situation right now because it just so happened that the approval of the Oxford vaccine, which is the big one for the UK, they've ordered 100 million doses, came only a few days before the government decided to send us into a third national lockdown, about which there have been, despite the gloom always follows a lockdown, no major complaints because the virus case is absolutely soaring here, largely because of the new variant that was first detected in the autumn here in the UK. We had more than 80,000 people test positive on the 29th of December across the UK, which is the record we've had. I always find it remarkable. That's just the people who went and got a test. There's going to be plenty of people who are asymptomatic, who didn't get a test for their symptoms. Just the numbers are truly astonishing at the moment. The um, chief medical officer said that it's one in 50 in England last week had the virus. So in that respect, yeah, thank God we've done okay on the vaccine front because it has delivered a sort of shred of light at a very dark moment. 1.3 million people vaccinated so far. If Boris Johnson were here, I think he would have busted in when Sarah was talking and said, it's not just Israel doing well, it's the UK as well. We're not doing as well as Israel, not nearly as well. But um, 1.3 million isn't too bad, as Boris Johnson doesn't tire of saying it's more than the rest of Europe combined. 
in the sense this is he was obviously portraying it as a kind of first great step for Brexit Britain, right? Britain went its own way in terms of the approval process that it used. Uh, you know, it has two vaccines rolling out there. And that maybe brings us on to the one of the other you know big stories of the past couple of weeks, which uh, meant that a lot of us were working, spent a lot of Christmas Eve working because this post-Brexit trade deal between the EU and the UK was finally sealed. And I think it was very interesting, you know, Boris Johnson gave a press conference, Ursula von der Leyen gave one, and um, maybe we can just hear briefly actually how both of them portrayed it because I thought it was interesting. I mean, both of them were fundamentally talking about sovereignty and how, you know, sovereign countries are or groups of countries are over their own affairs. But they both had quite different, you know, interpretations of what that meant. And I thought that in a sense summed up, you know, a lot of the debate over the past few years. This is a a jumbo Canada style free trade deal uh, of exactly the kind that I think this country needs. And And as I say, I believe it resolves a long-standing and uh, very, very difficult uh, problem. Uh, people said you couldn't uh, be part of, the, uh, of a free trade zone with the EU without being obliged to uh, follow uh, EU laws. If you remember, uh, people, I, th- I think there was a, it was, I think we were told we couldn't have our cake and eat it and that kind of uh, thing. I'm not, going to, I'm not going to claim that this is a cakeist uh, treaty, uh, Robert, but, um, uh, you know, it's, it's uh, because that, but it is, it is I, I believe, uh, what the country needs at this time and uh, the right way forward for, for the UK. This whole debate has always been about sovereignty. But we should cut through the sound bites and ask ourselves what sovereignty actually means in the 21st century. For me, it is about being able to seamlessly do work, travel, study, and do business in 27 countries. It is about pooling our strength and speaking together in a world full of great powers. And in a time of crisis, it is about pulling each other up instead of trying to get back to your feet alone. And the European Union shows how this works in practice. And no deal in the world can change reality or gravity in today's economy and today's world. So, Charlie, how is, you know, with the dust has settled, I know that you and your colleagues have been poring over the 1,246 or whatever it is, pages of the agreement. You know, when you kind of take a step back, can you look at it and say, you know, who's won, who's lost here? Where are the big wins and the big losses in the agreement? I think you can break it down into three things. If you look at the deal in terms of the terms Boris Johnson and his government kind of set for it, which was very clearly to put, as you mentioned, the sovereignty question over the economy, it's a good deal for them. Like They did manage to get back control of all the uh, the key things they said they would, money, border and laws and all of that, and fisheries after a five-year transition period and then further negotiations after that, but technically sovereignty. And the European Court of Justice won't have a say in, in arbitration and disputes between the EU and, and the UK. That will be done independently. But it's not sovereignty without cost because we are free to diverge from EU rules, environmental standards, labour standards. However, if we do, the EU has the right to come in and impose tariffs after some sort of negotiation or sort of impose sanctions on the UK in some other way. So it's sovereignty, but not without a cost. But I think Boris Johnson would say, we accept that. All we ever wanted was our sovereignty. Then you can look at whether 
Brexit was a sensible idea in the first place. And that debate has been had over and over again, whether it's economically a good idea. I mean, I think there's not many serious economists who say it's going to be that good for the economy, but it wasn't just about that. And then the third thing is something that Johnson has been claiming, which I think is complete rubbish, which is that this will end the debate. This will end the question that's bedeviled British politics for for many, many years. I mean, pull the other one, because not only are we going to have those debates every time there's an area of regulation in the economy that we think we might want to diverge from, all but we can't, because if we do, that will incur some tariffs from the EU. So there'll be a camp that says, well, don't diverge. You know, that'd be stupid. Mm. That's a mini Brexit. And there'll be a camp that says, do diverge. This is what Brexit was for, to sort of do our own thing. And those debates are going to bedevil British politics for the years to come. They won't, I don't think they'll be first order things necessarily. I mean, we're kind of sick of this issue here now. And if it's, you know, oh, do we want to regulate tech in a different way? I just, I don't think that's going to become a first order political issue, but it will be there. There will be a, a review of the whole deal in a few years' time. Give it a bit of time and there will be a rejoin movement, I'm sure of it, because a whole lot of young people did not vote for Brexit, did not want it. New voters coming in, as it were, are probably going to feel that way, if not more. So the idea that the Europe question is over for the UK is for the birds, but otherwise a a mixed bag. How's it gone down? I mean, I think obviously there was relief right on both sides of the channel that there just was a deal because we got a taste of the kind of, well, chaos really that would have resulted if there hadn't been a deal by the end of the year. You know, when France was pretty much closing its border and other EU countries did the same in response to the the new strain of the coronavirus. But Matt, in Berlin, is there just a kind of general sense of relief that it's done? Absolutely. And especially that uh, the deal will save German car makers from the worst effects. I think that was something that the political class in Berlin was particularly worried about with companies like BMW, obviously very active in the UK. You did see the, the shares of those companies shoot up as soon as the deal was sealed. So you could see that there really was something substantial at stake for them. But overall, I think it's interesting to listen to Charlie, because here I think that the feeling is that the Europeans got the better deal. And, you know, my favorite comment came from the normally very staid Frankfurter Allgemeine Zeitung, which wrote a commentary with the headline, So Long and Thanks for All of the Fish, a, a reference to the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy series. And I think that, at least in sort of the Berlin circles of of people who pay attention to this stuff, there is a real feeling that the EU got the upper hand here and that it was worth the wait. Okay. well, we could talk more about about this, but I'm conscious that time is marching on. So so we'll jump forward to another big deal that was done, at least in principle, over the holidays, and that's the EU-China investment deal. This is an agreement that is meant to make it easier, well, particularly for European countries to do business in China. And that's how it's being sold, as as giving greater market access, greater freedom to European companies to operate in in China without having to form joint ventures or or other kind of things of, of that nature. But it has proved very controversial and we'll still have to go through the approval process, which would involve the European Parliament. It's a big question mark there. But it also has not gone down well in Washington Matt, how important do you think that is? Because it was the incoming administration, actually, that was quite vocal with its concerns about this. Absolutely. And I think it's absolutely essential going forward. Unfortunately, it looks like the EU and the Biden administration are going to get off on the wrong foot here because you had Biden's foreign policy advisors explicitly 
warning the EU against going forward with this deal before Biden takes office, doing so even publicly, which was quite interesting. So they weren't just kind of urging people behind the scenes. And, you know, I think it's a sign that despite all of the relief that you have in Europe over the fact that Trump is leaving, there still is a sense that Europe needs to kind of pursue its own course, which it's well within its rights to do. But this, I think, in terms of the symbolic nature of this step is quite big because China is something that Biden has made very clear that he's concerned about. It's the one issue I think that he and Trump really agree on or that the Democrats and Republicans in the United States really are on the same page on when it comes to the threat that they see China poses. It's not a view that is shared in in much of Europe. And the interesting thing to me is that this deal was really driven by Angela Merkel, who has made repeated trips to China over the years. She was there last September. And despite issues like the forced labor camps and the Hong Kong crackdown and so forth, she was willing to push forward with this because she thinks that it's so essential to the European economy and in particular to the German economy. So I think this is not going to be an issue that goes away. Those are two of the concerns that are being you know, mentioned by critics, even within Europe, of this deal as to whether it's wise to go ahead with it. Um, Reem, what did you want to chime in on? I thought it was very interesting, the power of a tweet by a Biden administration nominee. Mm. Mm. This person, Jake Sullivan, who is his nominee for national security advisor, is not even a US official yet. And he puts out this tweet that was, you know, ambiguous. Yeah, it, was, it, wasn't, it certainly wasn't Trumpian, right? It was a kind of diplomatically worded tweet. Yeah. It was like, you know, we'd like to have this discussion with you guys, Europeans, before you do this. Like, this would be our preference. He wasn't demanding. Yeah. He yeah. wasn't putting out an ultimatum. And it just became such a huge thing in the European conversation. Yeah. And it just made me think, wow, so much for European strategic autonomy. Well, I guess they went ahead and sealed the deal, but yeah, there was enough. It did create... But it's very interesting how nervous it made some people. I don't think this is going to become like a hugely big crisis between the EU and the Biden administration. They're going to have to work out some kinks, but like it was just very interesting. It's a tweet by a guy who isn't an official yet. Mm. If we move on to to looking to the, the year ahead, I mean, transatlantic relations is going to be one big theme. Joe Biden will be the next president of the United States. And we looks at the time of recording that there will be a Democratic majority in the Senate, which means a Democratic majority in both houses. Sarah, as someone who you know used to cover politics in Washington, how do you see things uh, developing? Well, indeed, the outcome of these Senate races in Georgia is going to be pivotal because it will mean that the Biden administration can actually do something vaguely resembling meaningful legislation. So I think especially for climate policy, the U.S. might actually again become a player. Mm, Yeah, that's certainly one area where, well, certainly they've already outlined that they'll come back into the Paris Agreement and other areas. Charlie, how does the, uh, this is actually quite a big year on the international stage for the UK. How do they see their chances of of forming a good relationship with the Biden administration? And what are the kind of key moments in the year ahead for global Britain? If you Yeah, I think um, there's obviously loads of discussion ahead of the US election in the UK around the fact that Biden and his likely incoming team are really no fans of Brexit, quite the opposite. 
Biden said disobliging things about Boris Johnson in the past. Boris Johnson said disobliging things about Barack Obama in the past. The personal relationship didn't look like it was going to be warm. And had that turned into a policy issue, had the UK upset the apple cart by not doing a Brexit deal, and in particular by changing the way it was planning to do things on the island of Ireland and perhaps forcing a border between Northern Ireland and Ireland, that would have really led to some pretty pretty tough relations, I think, because Biden is very close to the Irish government, has Irish roots, and I think cared quite a lot about that issue. It was really kind of was, was close to being a first-order issue for him in terms of how he thought about the UK. That hasn't happened, and so the stage is set for all the kind of the upside things that are being talked about here in the UK when it comes to relations with Biden, which is, as you say, it's being sort of talked about in number 10 as an international year for, for the UK, when the year when potentially we learn what the hell global Britain actually means. And there's some sort of key way markers there. There's the G7 summit, which the UK is hosting. I don't know exactly when yet. And the UK has expressed its intention to invite other democracies, other big major democracies to that summit to kind of form something like some call it a D10, Democracy 10, or perhaps something something larger than that. D10? I haven't heard that. Have you not yet? Yeah, D10 D- is one of the buzz things. For 2021, I'm noting it down, the D10. <laughs> it may okay. be even bigger. And there's one MP I spoke to who said that to take the idea of a global coalition of democracies to stand up to the rising autocracies and then reduce it down to D10 is a little bit kind yeah, of... Yeah, I was about to a little say bit 10, limiting. we've only got 10 democracies, this, yeah. the odds are not so looking good to you. But that does tie in with a Biden idea, exactly. right? He also has some yeah. idea of some conference of democracies, so I can see why yeah. they would want to kind of push that. And I think if the UK want to be smart about that in terms of courting the Biden administration, and, and why wouldn't you want to court the world's sort of most powerful country, still just about... They'd say to them, what did you want to do with this Conference of Democracies thing? How can we help you? Rather than, no, no, we're doing our G7 democracy thing. You, you know, don't compete with us. That would be stupid. Mm. But who knows? Who knows how they play it? The other big international event for the UK this year is, of course, the COP26 Climate Change Summit in November. In Glasgow? In Glasgow, yep. Yeah. Uh, which just to wave the flag for a moment, <laughs> <laughs> which you know some say is not not a smart choice because it might UK might have been perceived to have been downgrading it, not having it in the capital, but domestically perhaps a shrewd that choice. Is an if, assertion. I know I, I, were, I, I say some people say that I don't say that. Andrew. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well, I'm just pointing out it's outrageous. Go ahead, go ahead. nervous Englishman. Um, <laughs> it might look like a shrewd choice domestically because another of the huge issues on Boris Johnson's plate this year is the rising uh, support for independence in Scotland. There will be domestic elections in Scotland in May, most likely unless they're delayed by coronavirus, which is likely to deliver a big SNP majority, which increases the impetus for a potential second referendum on Scottish independence. And so having COP26 there, and if it's a big, if it's a success, if it's a, a big moment where the, the world's countries put forward some genuinely new and ambitious plans for cutting carbon. You know, Johnson can try and portray that as a, a UK success uh, for all four nations, which might not hurt in terms of the uh, shoring up the integrity of the United Kingdom. Yeah, yeah, I, I do think um, that is obviously a big issue for, for the year ahead. I think probably the other one we should talk about is Angela Merkel's departure from the stage and who might take the place, if anyone, as Europe's de facto leader. Matt, how's it looking? Give us a quick update on, um, you know, the race to succeed Merkel and the race to take over the, the CDU leadership, her party. 
Well, it's extraordinary given that this vote within the CDU is going to take place in about two weeks' time, that it really is completely wide open. I don't think anybody can tell you seriously who's going to win. And the other issue that's wide open is who's going to be the candidate for chancellor, because it's not a given that whoever wins this race to lead the CDU will become the uh, chancellor candidate. So I think it, for once, uh, German politics is unpredictable and you know maybe more exciting than it has been in a long time. I think it's interesting that there is this kind of outside candidate who has a real chance of of getting the the chancellor position has a lot of momentum behind him. And I'm going to go out on a limb here and predict that Markus Söder, who is the minister president oh. of Bavaria, will in the end prevail and become chancellor and go into coalition with the Greens, which would be another first for Germany. So I, I probably oh. have jinxed it with that, <laughs> but uh, I'm, I'm sticking to this prediction. <laughs> yeah, well, this is one of the things, as people will know if they listen to our last episode, we, you know, we've, we have now established the tradition of the little kind of tick or cross sound effect next to our predictions. So we'll see um, how that one stacks up. My my sense was that it might end up um, to kind of go back a little bit to where we started with Jens Spahn, who would not be the CDU chairman, but could still end up as a kind of, you know, a joint candidate of the CSU, the Bavarian Party and Merkel's if you want to call them that, you know, Merkel CDU. And so this is the strange thing, right, that two of the most popular candidates for chancellor, at least among the public, are not actually in the running to be the leader of the of the CDU. And then I'll let Sarah come in. Well, and Spahn was looking very strong until the last couple of days yeah, with this whole um, immunization issue. So if he can't resolve that, then I think his star will have dimmed come fall. Yeah. Sarah, did you want to jump in? Yeah, I, I was going to echo the point about Spahn that you have to wonder if the poll that came out just before the new year that showed him as the most popular politician in the country, even ahead of Angela Merkel, that certainly put a huge target on his back. And and I have to wonder if that has something to do with the complaints about the vaccination situation. Yeah, it's a tough one. I do think it's one of these things where sometimes being in the front line, even if you are making sort of unpopular decisions, can sometimes, you know, still work to your advantage as a politician, as you're seen as a crisis manager. But the question is, are you an effective crisis manager. And if, as this, uh, you know, debate over vaccines plays out, he's seen not to have been one, then that obviously could damage his chances. If, however, in a couple of months, you know, things are looking rosy again, and he's the guy who kind of, you know, rode through the storm. Let's see. I don't know. But also, if I can just jump in here, does Spahn have what it takes to sort of fill Angela Merkel's shoes on the European level? And, you know, being that kind of European sort of facilitator and kind of whisperer when we all need someone to kind of be the adult in the room and bring all sorts of different uh, sides together. And I think that is going to be for the EU sort of a huge question moving forward after Merkel. And obviously, you know, the French president, uh, Emmanuel Macron, definitely has a big claim to that sort of EU leader role, although he is also extremely divisive and doesn't actually have the Merkel sort of touch of bringing people together. He, he has the touch of sort of providing vision of making big suggestions, but does he bring people together? I'm not sure. And so the other question we might find ourselves sort of looking at is, well, is there no one who can actually take over for Merkel's yeah. uh, role on the EU level? Well, I think after Merkel, the, the longest serving person is Viktor Orban. And so a lot of people defer to him. Yeah, I'm not sure he's someone who brings people together either, either Matt. 
Well, this is the interesting thing in that the kind of two more longer serving EU leaders, I think, who would be left, and apologies to any EU leader who, if I'm getting this wrong, would be Orban and Mark Rutte. So two people at kind of opposite ends of the political spectrum, so not people who are going to be in the middle making the deal. And it's a good point uh, that Reen makes, isn't it, Matt, that nobody, and of course Angela Merkel didn't have this stature at the start either. She was actually relatively inexperienced. She had been a cabinet minister. She had not been a minister president. But most of the people we're talking about here I mean, both Suder and uh, Armin Laschet, the uh, Premier of North Rhine-Westphalia, are in their first terms as state premiers. You know, this is a this is a big step up to be the leader of the biggest country in Europe. And there's bound to be a kind of period of turbulence, I would think, there. Yeah, absolutely. But I, I would argue that the influence that Germany has in, in the EU or that the, the um, previous chancellors have had has more to do with Germany than that person specifically. Yeah, Germany's still Germany. And, and so if you have this kind of position qua amt, it is not as hard as it might seem. I do think that a divisive personality would make that more difficult, especially being Germany. But the Germans are particularly sensitive to this issue in Europe. So I think there probably will be a, a period of turbulence if it is somebody like Söder, who doesn't have a lot of international experience, or Spahn, who doesn't have a lot of real executive experience beyond the last couple of years um, as a minister. So exciting times ahead. Yeah, definitely. Well, Reem is helping me out on the production side as Christina, our producer, has a well-earned holiday this week and she just messaged me to say we are way over time, by the way. So we'll leave things there, but maybe just with some quick um, final thoughts. I wanted to ask any of you if you have some suggestions for New Year's resolutions for politicians. I have one for... Ursula von der Leyen, European Commission President, not sure if she's a regular listener, but I would like her to resolve to hold a proper press conference because she has been in office for more than a year now and I can't really remember her doing one. She does these very brief press conferences at the end of summits where you get two or three questions. It's all done by video. Obviously, one of the effects of the coronavirus at the moment is that we cover summits remotely. We don't get to kind of jam a microphone in front of someone and just ask them a question. And so that kind of level of pretty basic scrutiny is not really happening at the moment. And so I would like to see Ursula von der Leyen in front of the Brussels press corps for, you know, an hour, an hour and a half, just answering some questions from people who, you know, follow this stuff day in, day out. So that's mine. Anybody got any others? Wow, I'm going to join my voice to you and, and offer it up to Monsieur Macron, who has only <laughs> held one press conference since he became president in 2017, one proper press conference, I'm saying, not taking one or two questions at the end of you know, a statement. Uh, the other thing is, and that's not just for the French, I'm talking for sort of politicians across Europe and policymakers across Europe, do yourself a favor this year, just be humble and be direct. Try not to spin so much. And I think, you know, if things don't go your way, which we completely understand, you know, you're managing a very difficult pandemic, yeah. just come out and say, you know what, that was a mistake. We're doing better. And yeah, maybe people will up. be a little yeah. more forgiving with you. Okay, well, there's there's resolutions and then there's, then there's wishes. And, uh, you know, you never know. Sarah, what have you got? Yeah, perhaps a related idea for politicians to follow both the letter and the spirit of the coronavirus guidelines in wherever they are. Mm-hmm. I mean, Phil Hogan is the obvious example, and he's one of the few who's really suffered some consequences for it. But in general, we see just tons of pictures all the time of politicians telling people to stay home. And then it turns out they were at a party or their country house or whatever. So they should follow the same rules as the rest of us, please. 
Right. Behave is the short one. Charlie or Matt, have you got anything? Well, Boris Johnson, just so in contrast to the situations in France and, 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 and in Brussels, to be fair to him, credit where, it's, credit where it's due, he has actually done quite a lot of press conferences this year. But yeah. a New Year's resolution for him would be similar, actually, to what Reem was saying. Learn to under-promise and maybe <laughs> over-deliver mm. rather than the other way around, which he has done repeatedly this year. He's like a, a goldfish or, or, or a sort of hamster in a science experiment, just kind of not learning his lesson. So maybe now we've had a new year, that would be the thing for him to do. And it might earn him some better write-ups in the press if he did. Okay, okay. Matt, do you remember what yours was last year? I remember what it was. No, no, please tell me. I don't remember. I've got a very short-term memory. Uh, yours was for the European Union, grow up here. Ah, yes. <laughs> uh, which I think we then translated into qualified majority voting for foreign policy. Where... <laughs> I'm re-upping that. I'm re-upping that. <laughs> that it? Yeah? Okay. Okay, listen, we'll leave it there. Unless anybody wants to do some very quick last-minute recommendations for reading, streaming, listening. I would just add one thing that we didn't talk about to continue to monitor, read up on, and that is the European economy, which I think will mm -hmm. be a major story in the coming year, and it's going to get worse before it gets better, and that's going to have a lot of impact, I think, on politics across the EU as well. Yeah, I actually had that on the list, and you're absolutely right, we just didn't get through everything, but... I think that's also going to be a big issue here in Brussels. Again, obviously, the recovery fund, in theory, the money should start to flow at some point during 2021. You know, there are obviously going to be questions about whether it's anywhere near enough, given the current situation. And, uh, you know, we're going to have a lot of or some of the fights that we've seen over the last few years, particularly this issue of how much um, EU funding should be linked to respect to the rule of law. There'll probably be a, a court of justice ruling on that. And so that some of the sagas that we have known although one or two came to an end, such as the, the budget fight itself, you know, others will definitely continue. Okay, shall we leave it there? That enough? think so, yeah. Okay, We're only 15 well, minutes over, so. Yeah, but, you know, by the time we've edited all your stuff out, That's we'll be right. fine. We'll <laughs> be right on time. Yeah. Okay, listen, Sarah, Charlie, uh, Reem and Matt, thank you very much and Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. And that's all the time we have on this episode of EU Confidential. We'll be back next week. In the meantime, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you get it as soon as it drops. We also appreciate reviews, star ratings and recommendations to friends. You can always send us feedback too if you've got any ideas for topics to tackle, guests to interview or anything else. The email address is podcast at politico.eu. So until next week, I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. Thanks to our producer Antonio Fernandez and to executive producer Cristina Gonzalez and thanks to you for listening. <laughs>